So as David said last week, um, as the season of Lent began, we started looking at these last words of Jesus, with David reflecting on Jesus crying out on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And this morning, we're looking at Jesus' last words to his mother Mary and the disciple he loved as he's dying on that same cross. Lent is this time when we not only prepare ourselves to celebrate the mystery of the death and resurrection of Jesus, but also an opportunity to reflect on what this means to us today, our hope found in the events that happened so long ago. So let us pray. Gracious God, as we look to understand more of your truths and love, as we look into the words of your Son, open our hearts to receive more of you this morning as we seek to draw closer to you. Amen. Amen. I have to admit, as I've been reflecting and researching these last words of Jesus, I found that I have more questions and answers from a passage that I'm sure many of us have heard hundreds of times. And that isn't a bad thing. It keeps us seeking to delve deeper into the truths that Jesus inspires us to find there. And we'll see over the next few weeks, Jesus doesn't say a lot during the last few hours of his life. So each word that we can reflect on is so poignant and precious to us. So let's picture the scene. Jesus, an innocent man who has been brutally beaten, is hanging on a cross, surrounded by soldiers and onlookers, with a dying man on either side of him, also being crucified for their crimes that they had committed. And we're told that near the cross are standing his mother Mary, his mother's sister, Mary the the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene, along with the disciple Jesus loved, which we believe to be John, the writer of this gospel. Some commentators think that Mary's sister was John's mother, which makes Jesus and the disciples James and John cousins through their mother's side. And seeing as Jesus is also cousins with John the Baptist, it looks like there could be lots of family connections found in the Gospels. Something that I'm finding is so lovely and true of this church here, with so many family links, and I'm sure there are many more that I still haven't um, discovered yet. And it appears that all of Jesus' disciples, with the exception of John, have abandoned him. Something which sometimes history can be a little bit critical of at times. But before we judge too harshly these friends of Jesus, who have given up everything to follow him, we need to remember that as an occupied country, this is a dangerous time to be walking the streets of Jerusalem with armed guards, Roman guards patrolling, not to mention the Jewish authorities, out for blood. And Jesus was being killed as a criminal. So the disciples could have been targets during this time of civil unrest. But the women weren't really seen as much of a threat to anyone, so would have been more able to come and go without the fear the men would have faced of being arrested, attacked, and maybe even killed. And we know that Jesus was blessed to have a faithful group of women travelling with him throughout his ministry, providing for him and his followers out of their own provisions and caring for his needs. 
we read this and we don't really think much about it. But then I read um, a book when I was at college called Jesus Through Middle Eastern Eyes. And it actually said that it was really radical and shocking for Jesus to be travelling around cities and villages with a band of men and women spending night after night away from their homes. And the author says that in the Middle East at that time, women could travel with a group of men, but they would have had to have spent their nights with relatives. And so this makes it even more astonishing. And having broken with this cultural behaviour and being such a large part of the ministry of Jesus, it isn't surprising that they would have wanted to stay close to their teacher right up until the end. And so joining him here at the cross. And although they, they faced less risk than the men, there was still an element of courage that they had to face, with, I'm sure, some, hostel- some hostility. But Jesus had helped them, and they believed in him as the Messiah. But why was John able to stand at the foot of the cross in broad daylight with the women? Well, we need to remember that he was still just a young man who may not have even been in his 20s, and he may not have even grown a beard yet. And so like the women, possibly he didn't pose much of a threat either, just a young lad standing with his family. So let us imagine how Mary might have been feeling. Her beloved eldest son is dying in the most hideous way, right in front of her eyes, having been flogged and humiliated. Her pain and horror must have been so acute and unimaginable. She lived in a brutal world, but when it's your child hanging on a cross, we read that the onlookers were stood there, But I imagine, actually, that Mary's legs were giving way and she was being held up by the others. Mary had been warned to accept grief back when Jesus was just a newborn baby being presented in the temple, when we read about in the Gospel of Luke. The righteous and devout Simeon prophesied her son would be a light to reveal God to the Gentiles and the glory of the people of Israel. But he also warned that a sword would pierce her soul. What an accurate description of how she must have been feeling. This group of believers must have had so many questions in their bewilderment and grief. What would become of us? What did the future now hold? What happened to all our dreams? These are the same questions that we ask when our world is falling apart, be it through bereavement, breakups, sickness or loss of security, when we feel that our hope is ebbing away. But as we cast our thoughts on John, I wonder how he might have been feeling. Along with his brother, he had asked to sit on either side of Jesus in his glory. It's unlikely this had been what had been on his mind when they had made their request. And yet, we hear in the scripture that immediately before this request, Jesus tells his disciples that he will be betrayed handed over to the leading priests and teachers of the law, condemned to death, flogged and killed, and then three days later he would rise again. A pretty accurate description of what has just taken place in the last 24 hours. So was John remembering this prediction and the many others Jesus had shared with him, along with the miracles and his encounter as part of Jesus' inner circle of the transfiguration, where they met with Moses and Elijah? 
And so although he's feeling horrified at the extent of the suffering Jesus was going through, had he that hope that if all these predictions had come true, then maybe, just maybe, the kingdom of heaven that Jesus talked so much about may also be close at hand, that this really was all part of God's plan. And Jesus looks down from the cross and he speaks. He could have reminded those listeners of the times he had told them that he must suffer and that he had predicted his death. Didn't they remember? Or if it's, he could have said, it's okay, I'm going to rise again after the Sabbath and appear to them and it will all look brighter, so please don't worry. But he doesn't. They need to go through the experience of this gruesome death to fully appreciate the glory of his resurrection. Writer Nadia Bolt Weber says, The more we suffer, the greater our joy. And that is so true. So instead, despite his own agony and unbelievable suffering, he finds the energy to say to Mary, Dear woman, here is your son. And to the disciple, Here is your mother. It's likely Joseph had died many years before, and as a widow, Mary would have had no means to provide for herself. And so Jesus, as her eldest son, would have been supporting her. He had brothers, but they don't appear to be followers of Jesus, with James and Jude becoming part of the early church leadership, but not until later on. The term woman, although the NIV version does at least add dear, seems quite cold, but in the culture of the day, this was an acceptable way to address a lady, although maybe not your mother. I've read several theories this week about these words, some suggesting that Jesus uses this terminology because he's directing Mary to look to John as her son. And this goes along with the interpretation of this passage, which we've generally thought since the 4th century, that Jesus cared so deeply for his mother and so worried about her future, and showing his deep love for her, that he made sure she is cared and provided for by someone that he can trust, namely John. But I have to say, this has always left me pondering, did he just choose John because he was the only disciple there? For surely his older brother James would have been more suitable if she was to be welcomed into the family, especially with John being so young. And then David gave me some reading about a theory from a priest and writer, Fleming Rutledge, that gives a different interpretation. She says that in the Gospel of John, Mary is only referred to twice, and always as woman, never by her name. And she believes that she plays a more symbolic role Also concluding that while it was acceptable to call a lady woman, again, you would never call your mother so. Just remember that with Mothering Sunday coming up in a few weeks. (laughs) She goes on to write that in the Greek translation, we are told that the beloved disciple took Jesus to himself that very hour, or the literal translation, to his own that very hour. With her believing the line about Mary being taken into the disciples' home was actually added at a later date. So she concludes that this passage isn't about being nice to your mother, but is about a new community coming through the power of Jesus on that cross. Something that has always struck me about church is how, as a group of people from different backgrounds, interests and cultures, we can become loving friends and family 
we are a mix that are sometimes have nothing in common with each other. And if it wasn't for the reason um, of our faith, may not ever even have a reason to talk to each other or mix together. And that is what I love so much about being the body of Christ that makes up the church. We love, serve, worship and pray together and for each other, despite our differences and our peculiarities. As Paul says to the believers in Galatia, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And this writer Fleming is saying that by by rewriting the covenant in his own blood, Jesus has created a new relationship and that the disciple and woman aren't individual people he's referring to, but symbolic, representing the way family ties are surpassed by the ties of the Spirit, creating a much wider family. Now, I have to be honest, this theory blows my mind a bit, and it may make me nervous when David offers to lend me one of his books in the future. But it does make sense, and it's good and healthy for us to question what we read in our Bibles, especially passages we've known a lifetime, and keep asking God to show us anew fresh truths and ideas that show who God is as we seek to delve deeper into, into Scripture. And what we do know is those followers standing at the foot of the cross were in anguish and going through their own emotions about what this death meant to them. In our own lives, we all go through periods of brokenness, grief, loneliness or breakdowns, whether emotionally, physically or socially, where we wait in hope for an encounter with God. This is often referred to as the wilderness, desert, or walking through the valley. And in our Old Testament reading, the writer of Isaiah declares, The wilderness and the dry land will be glad. The desert will rejoice and blossom like a rose. It will blossom abundantly and rejoice even with joy and singing. In the desolation of the sight of nothing for miles and miles of barren land, All it takes is a shower of rain for colourful flowers to appear, almost from nowhere, and inspire joy in the hearts of weary travellers. And this is the sense of the writer Isaiah is trying to capture and share. The desert in the scriptures was never seen as an empty region, but a space of opportunity to be confronted with the presence of God. It's a place we never seek to experience, For those of us who have spent time in the wilderness, we know it's painful and emotionally exhausting. But it can also be where we can deeply feel connected to God. When we have nothing left to cling to but our faith, however battered and weak it may have become. When we look at the scriptures, some of the biggest events have happened in the wilderness. Jacob wrestles with a mysterious stranger. Moses encounters a burning bush. Hagar meets with God after being mistreated by Sarah, and Jesus gets ready to start his ministry after fasting for 40 days and nights. And so many of these stories end in a renaming. After receiving a new name of his own, Jacob, now called Israel, names the place he wrestled with God Penal, which means face of God. Hagar names the well of her salvation, I have seen God who sees me. 
Jesus comes out of the wilderness, now a rabbi and teacher. And now Mary and John, in their own wilderness despair, are renamed by Jesus, mother of John and son of Mary. Jesus sees us too. And I wonder how many of us have had our names changed by a loving saviour, but we tell ourselves we aren't worthy of it, and so we don't own it. God calls us beloved, forgiven, precious, chosen, enough. But we struggle to believe, especially when we're spending time in the desert, walking through our own path in the wilderness. Friends, let's own and clothe ourselves in the name given to us by our loving Saviour. Like Peter wants Simon, Sarah, Sarai, and Paul, born Soldu, despite their many faults, but secure in their knowledge that they are beloved children of God. God makes a way when there seems to be no way. And it's through our time in the wilderness that we finally come to see the light of Christ. More questions arise about what became of Mary after Jesus' death and resurrection. Tradition says John took Mary into his home and she lived with him in Jerusalem for 11 years before she passed. Another says John took her to Ephesus and she lived there until she died. However long Mary was cared for by John, what we do know is that the sacrifice Jesus made for us on the cross shows that God's abundance Abundant grace is hiding in, with, and under all the suffering and brokenness that we see in the world around us. A constant presence as we walk through the desert, drawing closer to us in our pain, ever present through it all. And while the suffering and death of Jesus Christ on a cross is not about us, it is certainly for us. Nothing separates us from the love of God in Jesus not insults, betrayal or suffering. And as we see, as we look at the story of Easter, not even death itself. And amen to that.